0: We are continuing in Luke's gospel today, so grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18, and if you need a Bible, some folks will be coming around in just a moment. They serve on our strike team. Uh, they help with uh, coffee in the morning and se- setting up and serving communion and, and things like this, bringing Bibles. You probably were greeted by one of them when you came in. Actually, you were greeted by probably our shortest strike team member, Isaac, at the door this morning. Um, he's very happy to, to serve on our strike team. Um, with his, with his dad. Uh, Luke 18 is where we're at. And while you're finding your way to Luke 18, I'd like to just start off with a, with a question. If you were to try to come up with a single descriptor of, of a, for a child, what would you say? Now, it might fall somewhere on this spectrum. Let me give you the continuum of descriptions of children. Here's the continuum I'm, continuum I'm working on. On the one hand, you might hear that children are innocent, beautiful angels. And if that's you, then obviously you've never spent time more than five minutes with a child. (laughs) Or you're a grandparent and you've forgotten what it's like to have your own children. On the other end of the spectrum, the continuum, you might just hear children are just vipers in diapers. (laughs) Have anyone heard that phrase before? I have, right? If you want proof of the doctrine of original sin, just spend time with someone between the ages of two to four, right? I got a woo on that one. I don't know. We're getting uncomfortable. Our passage today, so this is just a little bit of a a framework, because our passage today, we're only covering 17 verses, but it's three different kind of sections. It's two parables, and then this little narrative explanation of Jesus, As he's teaching, people are bringing their children to him. And Jesus has this familiar phrase toward the end of our passage today where he says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Which prompts a question What does Jesus mean about children here? And to whom does the kingdom actually belong? Is Jesus really handing over the keys? To the kingdom, to a bunch of babies, like literal babies? Is that what's happening here? What does Jesus mean here? That's the question I want us to ask as we read our larger text today. To whom does the kingdom actually belong? Or to say it another way, who gets the kingdom? Who gets the kingdom? So I want us to kind of keep that question in mind as we read together. We're going to read our entire text for today, Luke 18, verses 1 through 17. Like I said, it it contains two parables and then this little narrative section, and then I'm going to unpack kind of why I started this way. So let's read our text first, uh, Luke 18, verses 1 through 17. It'll be on the screen as well. I invite you just to follow along. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers exalted. Verse 15, now they were bringing even infants to Him that He might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to Him, saying, let the children come to Me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is God's word for us this morning. Now we could take this passage and actually have three separate sermons, if you will, on each of these parables and on this little section from verses 15 to 17. And I thought it might be helpful to help us understand what's happening in the narrative to look at the parables and how to better understand the parables by looking at the narrative. So we're going to just try to take it all as one big piece this morning. And the question we're asking is this, to whom does the kingdom actually belong? And Jesus answered it in the negative in verse 17, which we just read. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So let me say it the positive way. Those with childlike faith in Jesus are the recipients of the kingdom. It's the positive way to say this. Those who are, excuse me, those who have childlike faith in Jesus are the recipients of the kingdom. So we're going to start there. In verses 15 through 17, and then we'll go back and look at the two parables in light of what we just read. If there was a title for today's message, it would just be this, receiving the kingdom. So for you note takers, you have something to put at the top, receiving the kingdom. Look at verses 15 through 17 that we just read. The kingdom of God is something to be received and apparently is supposed to be received in a particular way. Way It's to be received like a child. In verse 15, we are told that as Jesus is teaching, people are bringing their children, their infants even, to Jesus, that He might touch them. They're looking for Jesus' blessing. Now to us, that seems pretty normal, right? This is not an uncommon thing for us. But in the ancient Near East, in this culture at this time, children were pretty low, When it came to social status, until a child reached the age of about 13 or so and started to cross over some of those rites of passage into adulthood, they were considered pretty unimportant actually to society as a whole. And no self-respecting rabbi of the time would waste his time with children when there are adults to teach, there are adults to deal with. And so we see some of this in the reaction of the disciples they are rebuking people bringing their kids to Jesus. That's a pretty strong word. Like you, someone uh, brings their child and essentially the disciples are like, why are you doing this? How dare you? That's kind of the feel we get. Jesus has better things to do than to hang out with your toddler. Is essentially the approach of the disciples, which is in line with the culture. But Jesus takes this opportunity to teach his disciples something. Not necessarily about children and culture, although we can pull from that. But he takes this opportunity to teach them something about the kingdom of God. Jesus says, let these children come to me. Do not hinder them. Don't keep them from coming to me. For to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. Now remember our our continuum from earlier. I see, I think we tend to read a passage like this, and maybe this is familiar to you. We tend to read a passage like this, and we import a pretty romantic interpretation of Jesus' words. Clearly, Jesus has more compassion for children than His disciples did, and that, I think, is true. But I think we need to be careful to not import this, like, rosy view on what Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is saying, no, 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 children are so special and innocent that they, they alone are worthy of the kingdom. I, I don't think that, not that I don't think children are special. Everyone's like, wow, Jake's really mean today. I have five kids, I love them. See, over here, I'm being really mean. Rather, I think, you can blame me. Rather, I think Jesus is highlighting something about the, the quality that children have in abundance. It's not that they're innocent, it's not that they're sweet in abundance, it's not that they're Uh, so, so perfect in abundance. What children have in abundance is they are needy. They are unworthy, if you will. For those of you who have held a newborn baby in your arms, what is remarkable is how much love you can have for someone who does literally nothing but take from you. They take your time, particularly your sleeping time, They take your money. If you're able to breastfeed as a mom, they are literally taking sustenance from you so that they can survive. They take and take and take and take and they contribute absolutely nothing tangible back to you of any outward or productive value. (laughs) Zero. Of all the places to get an amen this morning. Right? That's the twist in the plot here. Children have a list of zero accomplishments. And yet Jesus says these are the ones, and in fact, the only ones who will receive the kingdom of God. Remember, our, our big idea, those with a childlike faith in Jesus are the recipients of the kingdom. So now we ask the question, okay, what is this then childlike faith? Now, now some have said that childlike faith is just simple, right? Kids don't understand complex theology, so Jesus loves me is my theology. And and that's true, at least in part. It was the great preacher Charles Spurgeon who said this, my entire theology can be condensed into four words, Jesus died for me. And I love that. I love that. And while the core of Christian theology can be condensed into those four words, we can't overlook the fact that there is depth and richness to each of those words, that as we grow in our faith, the depth and understanding of those four simple words actually grows and matures as well. It, becomes, it gets more unpacked and understood. Let me just give you a brief unpacking of those four simple, condensed theological truths. Jesus. Jesus is the eternal Son of the Father. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the Good Shepherd and the spotless Lamb who takes away the sin of the world by His own death. It's not any Jesus. It's a very specific Jesus. Jesus died. Well, what does it mean that Jesus died? What kind of death did He die? Why was it necessary? For To whom does Jesus' death apply? What did it accomplish? Is it mine? And that's the last one. Me. It applies to me. The question is how. How does it apply to me? Does it just happen? How do I receive it? Do you hear what I'm getting at? Jesus died for me. Is the core condensed belief of christians and there is depth in those four words which we grow and grow in and can understand it isn't less than jesus died for me but it is a whole lot it is also a whole lot more so it's not merely and i use merely intentionally it's not merely simple it's not gullible it's not simplistic well then then what is it And this is where I think looking at these two parables this morning actually help us understand this childlike faith that Jesus is emphasizing. And so we have two parables earlier in our passage, two parables to help us understand the question of, well, what is this childlike faith? We have two. One is usually titled The Persistent Widow, and the other is usually titled The Pharisee and the Tax Collector. By the way, the titles uh, are not in part of the Scripture. The headings you have in your Bible were added by an editor, so we're going to look at the actual texts. So, that's kind of our our two, two ideas today are these two parables. First one is this, a person with childlike faith is relentless. Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 8. Let's go back to the beginning of our passage. Jesus tells them a parable to encourage their prayers. Now, if you were with us before, last week even, uh, in the end of Luke 17, Jesus casts a somewhat ominous picture of the coming judgment. And then He tells this, parable. And and that's what I love about this particular parable is Luke just tells us exactly what Jesus is trying to do here. He told them a parable to the effect, for this purpose, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Why am I telling you this? So that you pray and that you don't lose heart. It's always helpful when he tells us what what he's doing. parable goes like this. In a certain town, there's a judge who didn't fear God and didn't respect God. Man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him consistently over and over saying this, give me justice against my adversary. So in this parable, we have a judge and a widow. The judge is not moved by a fear of God, which means he isn't swayed. If you tried to appeal to God's law or even the phrase, maybe you've heard this phrase, for the love of God. It's kind of an appeal phrase that doesn't move him. He's unswayed. And this judge doesn't respect man, meaning he's not swayed by an appeal to emotion. Come on, man, have a heart for this sad, poor widow. And he's like, yeah, he's unmoved. And then the other side of this bench, if you will, we have a widow. Now, under normal circumstances first century context, a a woman here would not be the one having to make the case by herself before a judge. If she was young and unmarried, her father would go on her behalf. If she was married, it would be her husband. Or if her husband had passed away, but she had a brother, or or even a, a son, or a nephew even, could be one to advocate on her behalf. What this tells us in the parable, Jesus is insinuating, this woman is all alone. She is the one having to go to the judge to bother him for justice for her cause. So this tells us she has no father or uncles or brothers or sons. She's all alone. And in this culture, she's kind of the epitome, the example of the most vulnerable and needy adult. She has no one. Now, we're not told anything about her circumstance. We don't know about her family. We don't even know the argument she has with this adversary of hers. None of that really matters. Only this, that she is playing the only card she can play. She, and she is persistent in making her case before the judge. And Jesus tells us the judge can put up with it for a while, but it doesn't take long. And eventually, this persistent pestering is becoming a bother to him. So now he's just annoyed. And it's not because he had some revelation from God. No angel spoke to him in the night to tell him he needs to be nice to this woman. And it's not because he had some compassionate change of heart. There's nothing in here that says, and he felt pity on the widow. None of that is true. He was just annoyed. He's tired of her because she's complaining to him over and over and over again. The judge compares her persistence to being beaten down. That's the phrase he uses. She is beating me down with her persistence. So, in order to be rid of her, he rules in her favor. The parable then infers that she is seeking true justice. That she's not seeking wrongly. That whatever this this problem is, she's in the right. And that for some unknown reason, the judge is dragging his feet. For a while, he refused, verse 4. And we don't know why. Is he just mean? Does he not think she really has a case? Is he being bribed from the outside to not settle this case? We have no idea. All we know is that for a while, he refuses to act on behalf of this poor and alone widow. And then Jesus says this in the par- at the end of the parable. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Notice, Jesus calls the judge unrighteous. She, he is acting wrongly. He's not endorsing this judge. And then he says this, verse 7. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Jesus is a master at asking these rhetorical questions. The answer is, of course not. If an unrighteous judge will finally relent and grant justice, how much more, how much more will a good God give justice to His people who cry out to Him? He's drawing a contrast saying, God won't drag His feet. God is not slow to give justice. In fact, Jesus says, will he, he will give to them justice speedily. So don't you see, Jesus is saying, how much more God will give true and timely justice for His people. Now remember, Luke already told us why Jesus is telling them this parable. So that they ought to always to pray and not lose Heart. So here's how it relates to childlike faith for us. What does a child who is in need do? Mom? Mommy? Mom? 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 Mommy? Mom? Mom? Yes, dear. Right? This is particularly fun when dad's sitting right there and they just walk past Dad and ask, Mom, that's just is that just in our house? No? Okay. They're persistent right? And why is that? Why are they so persistent? I think the root cause of it is because they're in need. They need something. And yes, here's a little parenting side note. We should help our kids grow in patience. We should help them learn respect for others when they're on the phone or maybe in conversation with another person. We want to teach our kids how to solve difficult problems for themselves. But what's on display here is need. So what does a child in need do? They ask for help. They seek out the person who can step in and meet that need. And Jesus gives us this picture of a persistent widow of an, as an example of how to seek God the Father who meets our needs. And he says, pray in faith like this widow persisted the judge. Now, one thing I want to note with this. I want us to be careful not to hear in this widow a sense of selfishness or of self-serving only meeting my needs. I don't think that's that's the approach here. This is not a Karen who's hassling someone I'd like to speak to the manager. That's not the kind of persistence here. I just want to be clear on that. The widow knows she is clearly out of all other options. She has one card, one thing she can do. The one person who can step in and meet this need and rectify this wrong is this judge. My only hope is to go to that one guy who can do anything about it and plead with him consistently until he won't, until he won't, uh, until he'll act and stop dragging his feet. And that's the parallel. Jesus says, when we are in need, we can pray like this. And not only does God not drag His feet, He actually delights to answer the prayers of His children. And He added the side effect of encouraging our hearts so that we don't lose heart. So the question from this, as it relates to our faith in Jesus being childlike, am I relentless in my prayers? Far too often, I'm not. And why is that? Why is that? Do we trust too much in ourselves, in our own ability to solve the problem? We've got it all together, so we don't need anyone else's help. Just as I think that we can have a a holy discontentment, I think we can have an unholy contentment. What I mean by that is this, that we endure not in righteousness, but actually a form of selfishness. We endure whatever it is rather than actually seeking the Father for an answer and His help. We can, we're fine, right? And I think what we're doing in that is we're kind of covering up for some unbelief that hides in the recesses of our hearts that maybe God doesn't want to address this thing anyway. Maybe He's not really good. Maybe He's not going to do anything about it. When what the Father is after is a people with childlike faith who are relentless in our prayers, that we would not stop until we have an answer from our good Father. pastor I know um, served for a number of years on a foreign mission field with his wife, and a time when they were on the field, his wife got sick, went to the doctor, they took a, a CAT scan and found that there was some cancer. And so they had a trip planned to come back to the United States to seek medical care, But before they left to come back to the United States, some folks from the the indigenous peoples, the the brothers and sisters in country, said, hey, before you go, we'd like to pray for you. When we get sick, we don't have the option to even go to the hospital in our own uh, nearby city all the time, let alone go to the United States. And we're glad for you. But we don't often have that option. So when we get sick, we do the only thing we know how to do, and that's pray. Can we pray for you? And as the story goes, as... My friend tells it that that night they had just a beautiful time of prayer and seeking the Lord and asking for His intervention. And they flew back home uh, a couple of days later and took another scan here at a U.S.-based hospital. And as, as he tells the story, they put up the first picture, which showed the cancer, and then they put up the one they just took. And the doctor says, I don't know what happened here, but the cancer that was here is not here. Okay, doctor had no idea what was going on. My pastor friend was like, I know exactly what happened, (laughs) right? We do what we, the only thing we can do is we pray. And that's a picture of what faith-filled, persistent, relentless prayer looks like. Like the widow who really only has one option, childlike and needy. The kingdom belongs to those who are relentless in their prayers, the first mark of childlike faith from this parable. Here's the second. The one who has childlike faith is ruined. Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. This is the second parable we read. Two men, both probably Jewish. One's a Pharisee, a religious leader and a teacher. One's a tax collector. They're both coming to public worship and to public prayers this is either in the morning, the daily worship and prayers that would happen in the morning or possibly the afternoon where atonement offerings would be made for the sins of the people of God. The priest would make an atonement sacrifice for the sins of the people by slaughtering a lamb. By the blood of a lamb, the sins of the people were covered. They were paid for. Atoned for is the phrase. And note the contrast between these two men. The Pharisee comes into worship The one everyone looks at and just assumes he's righteous. He comes in, stands by himself so as not to be too close to the common people, but close enough to be heard. The tax collector, who would have been a Jewish man who who essentially worked for the Romans, collecting taxes from the Jews on behalf of Rome. Tax collectors were seen as particularly disliked people. They were traitors. He literally worked for the occupying force. As Jesus tells the parable, he contrasts these two men further. Listen to their prayers. Look at verse 11 of chapter 18. This is the prayer of the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then he goes on his his list of personally inexcusable sins. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Compared to the average person, this guy was good. He doesn't participate in the really bad sins. And even though fasting according to the law of Moses is only required a few times a year, this guy fasts more than what's required. Browning points. Even though uh, tithing was required primarily from the food you grew or the food you raised, whether grown or livestock, He gives a tithe out of everything that He brings in. Look how righteous He is above and beyond. Surely, His standard of righteousness is even higher than what God has said in the Law of Moses. And I don't know if you noticed when you read this prayer, doesn't sound like any prayers that I'm familiar with. His prayers aren't confession. They're they're not even like gratitude or thanksgiving to God for like enabling him to live his righteous life. His words are full of contempt for others as he compares himself to everybody else. Did you pick up on that? Now look at the prayer of the tax collector. And before we look at his words, look at his posture. He comes into the the congregation, if you will, comes into the, the courtyard. He stands far off to the side, doesn't even come all the way in. He knows he doesn't deserve to be there amongst God's people. He doesn't lift up his eyes to heaven. His head hangs low. He senses his own unworthiness. He beats his breast He just beats his chest as he prays, which in the time would have been a pretty atypical thing for a man in the culture to do. This kind of raw emotion on display in public was reserved for only the most extreme scenarios. And yet, here this man, standing alone in the back corner of the church, essentially, is beating his chest. He has a keen grasp, it seems, on his own sinfulness and unworthiness. He knows why he is there. And this is his prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally translated, he's saying, God, make propitiation for me. Atone for my sins. And note the contrast that Jesus continues. This man, he says... This tax-collecting sinner, when worship is over, when he goes down to his house, he goes down to his house justified rather than the other one. Note that the Pharisee here is now just identified as the other one. Only one of these two men walked away having been made righteous, clean before God. And which one was it? It was the one who didn't make a name for himself, but who recognized his rank unworthiness, and he threw himself at the mercy of God. If there's any salvation to be had, it must be in the promise that God gave, that only through the blood of a spotless lamb can our sin be atoned for. Can our sins be forgiven? Can someone be made right with God? This tax collector in the moment seemed to know that. If I'm going to be clean, it's because God's promise that a lamb would pay for my sin has to be true. Otherwise, I'm done. Look at the rest of verse 14. Jesus continues. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted the arrogant, judgmental, and self-righteous cannot receive God's gift of grace because they don't need it. That's what I think Jesus is saying here. And here's a quick heart check for us. If you're if you tempted like me to overcorrect and say to ourselves, you know, I'm really glad I'm not like that Pharisee, perhaps we have a little more in common with him than we think. It's easy for us to think about the Pharisees are the super religious people. And so super religious people, I'm glad I'm not like them. That's not the heart of the problem of the Pharisee. The heart of the problem of the Pharisee was I'm better than everyone else for whatever my list is. Because self-righteousness distorts a right view of self, a right view of God, and a right view of other people the Pharisee sees himself as the most worthy person that he knows and the tax collector sees himself as the least worthy person he knows it would be interesting this is all speculation but Paul called himself the chief of sinners and I wonder if these two like had a fight real quick at the gates like actually I'm the worst and he's like no 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 I'm the worst And we're all standing there, Lord willing, at the end saying, I'm the worst, Jesus is the best, right? But that's the mentality here. The question is, do we see ourselves rightly as completely ruined and in need of healing and restoration? Theologian and author uh, Kenneth Bailey says this, only those who sense their unworthiness in the presence of God's offered grace can approach God's holiness and appropriately receive God's grace. Only those who see their, sense their unworthiness in the presence of God's offered grace can approach God's holiness and appropriately receive that grace. Do you see it? It's not the one who thinks himself righteous and all put together, but the one who knows that he is not. The one who needs the help of another. This is a picture of childlike faith I can't do it myself I can't trust in myself but I trust in the promise of my father who can Now this is kind of why I opted to tackle all three of these little sections of scripture together because the question that Jesus seems to be uh, answering about what childlike faith looks like is kind of seen in these two parables It's drawing a quick uh, a hard line in the sand between deserving and undeserving all the way back in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is scoffed at by some of these same Pharisees because Jesus spends time with tax collectors and sinners. And if you remember, this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 5, when he answers them on why do you hang out with sinners and tax collectors of all people? Jesus says this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. Sinners. To repentance. You don't go to the doctor if you're healthy. The doctor doesn't heal healthy people, the doctor heals the sick. Now, the reality Jesus is getting at here is everyone is sick, Pharisee and tax collector alike, but only those who know they are sick are the ones who are going to seek out a remedy. It's the undeserving, the needy, the unworthy who are able to receive this free gift of God's grace. They are ready to receive the kingdom. And hear me, we don't have to wallow in our unworthiness. That's the beauty of God's grace. He takes those who are unworthy and makes them worthy. This man went down to his house justified. That's salvation language. One of his two men who went back to his house was still lost, but one went back to his house worthy. The one who acknowledged his sin and his need and received that mercy he was pleading for. A little bit later in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is encouraging his disciples not to be anxious. He says, don't worry about the birds of the air. The Lord feeds them. Don't worry about what you'll clothe yourself. Look at the flowers of the field. How beautiful are they? right? How much more, Jesus says, does He care for you? And then in verse 32, Jesus says this, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, we all come into the kingdom as children do, all of us, ruined and relentlessly needy, and it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And as we grow By God's grace, into spiritual adulthood, into maturity, in this spiritual family that we're a part of, we may, by God's grace, grow out of immaturity, into maturity, and even though we do that, we never stop being needy. We never start counting up our goodness to present to Him. Here, Lord, here's the list of accomplishments to prove I am worth some kind of spiritual promotion. We don't do that. Rather, we actually live in this place of desperate need and full assurance of hope. Now, I skipped over one verse. The end of verse 8, Luke 18. After Jesus tells this parable of the persistent widow, He says this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Remember, this parable comes on the heels of the the judgment, the vultures gathering, the coming of the Son of Man to bring fullness of His kingdom to bear on earth. And Jesus asks, when I come again, will faith on earth be found? Will this kind of dependent, needy faith be found? And so here's my prayer for myself this week as I've been working through this text for us today as we go from here in just a few moments. Lord, I pray that You will find this kind of childlike faith here. I pray You'll find us humble. You'll find us relentlessly pleading with You to expand the kingdom in our midst. Relentlessly pleading with You to meet the needs of Your people. I pray You'll find us full of trust in Your sovereignty, that You'll give us a a holy discontentment with the encroachment of the kingdom of darkness in our world, That you'll find us pleading for your kingdom to come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven lord i pray you will find us walking fully in the light that you'll find us not relying on our own lists of good work to, to prove somehow our righteousness but that you will find us humbly confessional and growing in true holiness that comes as the holy spirit works repentance and faith in us i pray Lord, you'll find us desiring to be near to Jesus. You'll find us longing for His return. You'll find us not distracted or hindered, but ready. That's my prayer. I want to answer Jesus' question in verse 7. Will the Son of Man, when He comes, will He find faith on earth? Oh Lord, I pray You will. This kind of faith here. As we close, I, I just want to look briefly at the scripture that Becky read earlier, our scripture reading for this service from Psalm 65. You can turn there if you like. A couple of verses will be on the screen as well. You don't have to. I don't know if you know this, but the scripture passages that we read as part of our service are intentionally chosen each week. Maybe you've picked up on that. Now here you go. Inside baseball. There you go. We pick them on purpose. Psalm 65. I want us to look again at this passage, just four verses of it, through the lens of Luke 18 and this childlike faith. Psalm 65, verse 1. Praises do you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. You alone are worthy of praise. And we worship you. This psalm is a song after all. Verse 2. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. You are the one who hears our prayers and answers our prayers, so we're going to come to you with humble relentlessness to you alone we will come verse 3 when iniquities prevail against me you atone for our transgressions even though we are unworthy sinners you atone for our sins you give us mercy verse 4 blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house the holiness of your temple your people are blessed because you welcome us and bring us near. And we are participants in your kingdom. We are partakers now of your goodness. To whom does the kingdom of God belong? To those with childlike faith in Jesus. They are the ones, we are the ones who are recipients of the kingdom. O Lord, give us this kind of faith and may it endure and grow in us. Amen. Let's pray.